when we were all worshiping here at the beginning, I, I thought uh, one of the, probably the reason we're feeling what we're feeling is, you know, we've never had to eat stale manna around here. You know, there's always been. I mean, Brother Blair carried that load for 48 years, and and uh, Brother Ossie, Brother Dan, all these guys, they're going to do their part. I think uh, I think we can say every meeting, every gathering we've ever had, there's been the word of God. Amen. Amen. And uh, it's pretty precious, you know. Amen. And uh, I remember that meeting at the Black Hat Saloon. You know, when, <laughs> oh, ye of little faith, you know. I mean, I think... I wasn't the only one, but when Sister, G- I mean, we were all so tense because Brother Zafir's dad was there for the first time, and we were all trying to behave, <laughs> you know, and, and, and we were singing, it was good, and then all of a sudden, Sister Julie, whoa, threw that guitar off and started spinning, and that's exactly it. You described it. She, she broke through the wall. Amen. Amen. Something happened. There was, it was the, the it was the word of God in action. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. And I, I think of you, Brother Richard, and, and uh, what happened. You were able to speak the word of God, instant in season, even out of season, you know. And, and you know, we're all responsible for that, just like Brother Tim just shared, you know. The whole body's got to be alive. You know, a body, when the blood stops flowing, when the oxygen didn't get into the cells, things shut down real quick. <laughs> you can go without this, you can go without that and all, for, for a period of time, but you can't go without the oxygen. You know, you've you got to have it, you know. I think of uh, the, the scriptures there in Hebrews uh, 10 and, and uh, uh, where it talks about... Uh, the new and living way through the veil, you know. But then earlier it talks about how, let me even read it. Amen. Amen. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, you know, amen, amen. And that, that, that forerunner, you know, he's made a way for us, amen. And, and the way is into the presence of the Lord, amen. And if we read, there, there's a little change in analogy. Uh, when you read over in, in John 10, uh, most assuredly, I say, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep, the forerunner. Amen. To him, the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep. He goes before them for the sheep hear his voice. They will by no means follow the voice of the stranger. So in the change of analogy here, 
the one is emphasizing the entering into the presence of the Lord. But then we've got another situation where there's a leading out. <laughs> Amen. Amen. And uh, there's a, a, a couple of scriptures over in the Old Testament, you know, when it says in, in 1 Samuel 3 and 1, Then the boy Samuel ministered to Yahweh before Eli, and the word of Yahweh was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. Amen. We know this is Eli's sons had carneled out, and, and uh, uh, the word of God was rare. <laughs> it wasn't there anymore. Amen. And, and uh, uh, it says there was no widespread revelation. And uh, there's other translations of that. Uh, there was no word spread abroad. Amen. And, and uh, the word actually is, is the same word that's used over in Micah. And it says in Micah 2, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob, and will surely gather together the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. They will make a loud noise because of so many men. Amen. There's going to be this gathering. Amen. Amen. But then it changes. And it says, the one who breaks open the breach maker, the forerunner, will come up before them. They will break out. Amen. There, there's this place of safety that the Lord has for people. But then the Lord comes because he says right after that, they will break out. They will pass through the gate and go out by it. Their king will pass before them with Yahweh at their head. You know, all of a sudden we've got this, this sense of a breakout. Amen. Amen. The, 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 the breach maker. What happened there with uh, Sister Julie? Amen. And if you read over in, in Zechariah 4, there's the, uh, the reference to the, the two witnesses. Amen. That, uh, and the context of that chapter is it, it says there's a vision and he sees these two olive trees, which are, are spoken of as, as the witnesses. And, and it said the, then, then it, it almost seems like a break, but it's not. Because the very next thing after Zechariah says, what is this? seems like the prophets never knew what they were seeing. They're always, what is this, Lord? Show us. And, and the Lord always says something back like, don't you know? You know? <laughs> and, and, uh, uh, and so the first thing that he says is, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Amen. There's something about these, these witnesses that it's not by might or power, but by my spirit. Then the second thing that it says is, is that uh, uh, this is what is going to complete the temple. Amen. Amen. And then it describes the two olive trees. And he says, these are the olive trees that, that fill the lamp. Amen. That gives the light. And these are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord. And as we know, those are sons of fresh anointing. Amen. And I just, 
Brother Tim's exactly right, you know. The, the burden for the fresh anointing, the burden to be the two witnesses, the, the ones who are separate from the court of the Gentiles. You know, they talk a lot about God. But the breakthrough, amen, the, that which is going to move things forward, that's which keeps the life there, the, the fresh manna. You couldn't eat it the next day, amen. That's that breakthrough spirit, amen, that fresh anointing. And I believe God is, is wanting us to understand that that is to be distributed on every single one of us, amen. That we're not to seek the safe place. I mean, you know, this is a pretty incredible place. And I'm not talking about geographically moving somewhere, by the way. I'm talking about not being willing to play it safe, not being willing to just uh, stay within the, the confines. Amen. Amen. The entering into the body is to enter into his presence. And if his presence is is wanting to anoint us, amen. We've got to be willing to offer up everything, even our images, and be willing to be used by God, amen. That's what's going to keep it alive, amen. That's what's going to keep us that 144,000. That's what's going to keep us inside the temple instead of the courts of the Gentiles, amen, amen. That's, that's what the forerunner has done for us, We've seen it in the lives of those who've gone before us. Amen. Amen. God has an anointing for each and every one of us. Not to come up with new revelations and popcorn revelations and things like that. Amen. It's not that. It's following the leading of the Spirit and be willing to step out when it's time. Because you had to have been there to know how much tension there was in that room. When Sister Julie did what she did. It took something. Amen. She was more concerned about obeying God than anything else. Amen. And if we stay in that place, miracles will happen like what happened in Brother Richard's family or, or Brother, Brother Tim's family. We've got to stay right there. Amen. Amen. As, as people with fresh anointing. Amen. In your family, fathers, in your family, ministers, everybody. Amen. That's, that's the life we have as a body. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. I'm so thankful. Amen. 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 We, there's, there's a lot of people who uh, don't feel what we feel. Amen. There's a lot of people who hear a lot about the Word of God, and it does not feel the same way that it feels here. Amen. Amen. It's real. Amen. Amen. Let's, let's be willing to, 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 to enter the presence and therefore step out of the fold. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. As Brother Howard was speaking, I was thinking of a conversation I had with a, a pastor in the fellowship here yesterday. And um, we discussed it somewhat on the broadcast, but it stayed with me. And honestly, the concern that he was raising was just how easy it is for us to be led astray from 
the essence or the priority of God's purpose in our lives and begin to seek out the circumference or the periphery of God's blessings in our lives. And um, I think we all battle that. Amen. It doesn't make it easier that we're in a, a wonderful context and that there's a lot there's a lot to love and appreciate about the natural aspects and outworkings of who and what God has called us to be. But as I was speaking to him yesterday, I, I thought of that passage, and I, I quoted it on the broadcast, but I thought of that passage in where Peter says, 1 Peter 2, he says, he speaks of the cornerstone, and he says that we are coming to him as lively stones. And then he says that we are being fitted together to form a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And we all know that, that the house is the church. The house is the temple wherein God wishes to dwell. But Peter is saying that the purpose for the church, for the house, is to create a place where we can offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Is that for one person? Is that for the singers and the preachers only? Amen. The house, the reason you came to the body of Christ is to find the place where you could offer to God the acceptable sacrifice. That's why we're being built together instead of scattered asunder. Amen. We're being built together to form a spiritual house to offer up spiritual sacrifices. That's not an easy thing because sacrifice by its definition is not easy, is it? And so, whatever this sacrifice is, your flesh is going to want to pull you away from it. Tell you it's not necessary. Help you find an alternative to it. And that's how we displace the central purpose of our lives with the periphery or the circumference or the blessings that might attend it. And I think that's what Brother Howard is, is speaking. He's, he's coming with the same word. It's, he's saying, nothing matters like the anointing. But what is the anointing? It's when the sacrifice is a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Notice he doesn't say just sacrifice. He says spiritual sacrifice. You know, Peter was willing to make sacrifice, but it initially was not the spiritual sacrifice that God was calling him to. It was sacrificial in a manner of speaking for Peter to pull out his sword and boldly step up to cut off Malchus's ear. That's showing a degree of sacrifice. That's showing a degree of engagement that's remarkable. And oftentimes when we are unwilling to offer the sacrifice that God has prescribed, as Isaiah says, that's when we are all the more attracted to the things that God has not prescribed. 
We don't want to be standing there empty-handed. We don't want to feel like a renegade or a, a failure. So the Lord is asking something of us and it feels beyond us and it's going to cost something of us and we don't want to pay that. And so we are willing to double, triple, quadruple the amount of effort that we're giving in places where we're strong. And it's all just hiding from, from that real sacrifice that God has called us to. Brother Tim told his mom, Mom, it's all going to point back to the Spirit. <laughs> every Bible study, every conversation, the answer to every question is going to point back in the same direction, the Holy Spirit. And that's really what the Lord is saying to all of us. I want to come back to this, but I want to, I want to expound this a little bit from a couple angles. I want to consider some of the cultural trends that are in the world today. We are living in strange times. Would you agree with that? And I, I wager that you are sufficiently apprised that I don't have to gross everybody out by going through all the details of the strangeness that is unfolding around us in the world. But there is a snare in all of that, that that we would become like the Pharisee and we would say, I thank you, Father, that I am not like other men. There is a snare in that that we would not see the sinful nature and the universal patterns and dynamics inherent in that nature and how we participate in them also. So I have said recently, and I'm going to say it again right now, that every pseudo-gospel, every false salvation model is fundamentally different from Christianity in this. There may be a thousand ways, but fundamentally, they differ from Christianity in this. They all universally offer an environmental change to a nature problem. Can you consider that for a second? I think that students of philosophy would agree that modern socialist states and in large degree, modern liberal states are directly connected to the philosophy of Karl Marx, which was directly connected to the philosophy of Hegel, which was directly connected to the philosophy of Rousseau. Rousseau famously gave his, his powerful statement. He said, man is born free, but everywhere in chains. It's a powerful statement, would you agree? Oh, it's moving and stupidly false. Man is not born free if we believe the Holy Scriptures. Man is born in sin and shaped in iniquity. But this, this genealogy of falsehood takes on different forms. Hegel differed slightly from Rousseau, and, but all of them basically argue that human beings are okay, human beings are good, but it is their environment that is the problem. I thought it was remarkable. What do conservatives and liberals have in common? They share this philosophy introduced by Rousseau. Glenn Beck, who is about as conservative as you could possibly get, says, People are inherently good. This is a quote. Our souls 
are magnificent and capable of extraordinary performance. His first statement is categorically false, but it is elevated by the tacit truth of his follow-up statement. Steve Jobs says, as individuals, people are inherently good. This is a quote again. Then I start to agree with him. He says, I have somewhat more pessimistic view of people in groups. And I remain extremely concerned when I see what's happening in our country, which is in many ways the luckiest place in the world. We don't seem to be excited about making our country a better place for our kids anymore. But I wonder why when you start off with this categorical statement, as individuals, people are inherently good. Albert Einstein, I, I got, found a little bit more common ground with him. He says, two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity. <laughs> and then he follows and he says, and I'm not really sure about the universe. This is a philosophical presupposition. This is a world view. And if this is fundamentally true, another philosopher says, they, humans are inherently good. All of these, from Glenn Beck to Steve Jobs to Einstein to Edgar Allan Poe to, to uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, all of them, Vincent Peale, all of them say people are inherently good. They make that categorical statement. And if that is true, then we should be utterly preoccupied with environment as the fundamental pivot between misery and joy, between fruitlessness and success, between life and death. Before we go further, let me ask, does environment matter? Does it matter? Does culture matter? We, of all people, teach that it does, do we not? Jesus taught that it did. Isaiah, the Lord speaks through Isaiah showing that it does. The whole idea of exodus into a new culture but it's a question of the chicken and the egg. Which comes first? And, it, and can we put environment on the same plane as repentance? Do you understand? So we, we of all Christians, believe that environment is important. But it is important as an instrument to preserve, an instrument to cultivate, an instrument to sustain, to nurture, to encourage, it is not the core pivot point. Why can we make that categorical statement? Let me ask you this. What does the story of Genesis in the garden teach us about the environmental question? You have a perfect environment. You have a perfect mate. You have a perfect parent. You have perfect health. Ding, 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 ding. What are you missing? And yet that did not preclude the problem. 
And the mere existence of that environment did not solve the problem once it emerged. So, the whole foundation of Judeo-Christian thought begins with the premise that the environment is not salvation. Just wipe the whole story of Eden out of your Bible if you're going to adopt that worldview. The environment is not salvation. It does not mean the environment is not important. It is just not salvation. But if we believe this, then all the false gospels are going to present some, along with the true gospel, is going to present some sort of promise of change. Right? If your environment is the problem, then your whole life is going to hang on change. Change is going to be what you look for. Change is going to be what you reach for. Change is going to be what you remember. Change is going to be what you pray for. Change, 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 change. And I don't mean a change of self. I don't mean a change in the inner man. I mean an external change. When you say he's that way because of the way he was raised, that can be partially true. But if that is fundamentally true, what you're saying is he's not free. And he can't be. He is the product of circumstances outside his control. So there's got to be something if God truly has made us accountable for our actions. If heaven and hell are real, they cannot be if we are not free. There's no possibility of hell if we are not free. If we are the products of other people's actions and behaviors, then there can be no judgment, only pity. But if there is, in fact, judgment, and if Scripture, in fact, asserts that no man, that every man is without excuse, then this whole environmental argument breaks down at some point while maintaining truth to a certain degree. Okay, so... <clears throat> Everything is going to pivot on change. If the belief is that I am good and I am, my faults are merely evidence of my suffering or my hurts or what others did against me or how they deprived me. Every successful marketing scheme, political platform, educational program, and science advance appeals to man's lost soul, tacitly or overtly offering escape, which is the same as salvation. It's the most believable offer. You're not the problem. Your environment is to blame. But if you change your environment, you will be saved. And when that is about economics, we all cheer. But when it is about gender, we all freak out. But it is the same lie being told over and over and over. Do you understand? When, when we said that people are all basically the same and the only problem is that they need access to public education and they need to get out of the environment of their 
stultifying families in church and learn the real world, we were saying they will be saved if we change their environment. And we all applauded. And, and, and we said, when we said that people are backwards because they're on the land and they're poor and they don't, they don't appreciate the, the urban lifestyle and the liberties of choice, and if we get them out of the rural country and bring them into the city, they're going to be freed, we all applauded because that was upward mobility. And we saw upward mobility as access and access as change and change as salvation, right? But where do you stop? Do you see that it is the same mindset, the mindset that says, I'm not this way because there's something wrong with me. I'm this way because of the family I was born into. How is that fundamentally or philosophically different than saying, I was born into the wrong body? Do you understand? So the victim mindset, the mindset that says, I'm good and my environment is bad, ultimately the body itself becomes the bad environment and it is subject, therefore, to change. There are no givens. There is no acceptance that the world is bad and unfair. Suck it up, buttercup. This is how it should be, which is the truth. We expect that things should be good. We expect that we should receive. We expect that doors should open. And when they don't, we look for someone or something to blame. So what I'm saying is that what we are experiencing in this radical craziness where children are being castrated and mutilated in the name of freeing them to their true self, this was started and has really been a conveyor belt that the whole culture has been riding on for 200 years. This started with Rousseau lying to us and telling us men are born free, but everywhere in chains. Men are not born free. <laughs> what does the Bible teach us that is, is our native condition? Born in sin and shaped in iniquity. That our heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. That there is none good, no, not one. That no man is, is free from from culpability and every man is without excuse that's what scripture teaches us and this is a fundamental pivot in a whole worldview and everybody's freaking out now that it's turned to gender but they celebrated it all along the road that led us here victimhood is only useful if it leads to blaming have you ever uh, hit your head on a flower pot on the porch like really hard, but that's not a useful victimhood. You see what I'm saying? Unless you can tell someone you shouldn't have hung it there. But have you ever hit your finger with a hammer that you were swinging? Can we all agree that those are not useful pains? Because pain is only useful if it leads to blaming. It's like those are the ones that really upset us when we hit our finger very hard. And our brain is in overdrive. Who can I blame? Who can I, how, why did this happen? It's me. Never mind. <laughs> we hate it. <clears throat> so we have the free thinker. We have the responsible changers. And we have the blaming changers. 
But the culture is made up of people seeking salvation through change. Okay? So the responsible changers, they haven't found anybody to blame. Maybe they do a little bit, but it doesn't become the theme of their life. So instead, they set about to change themselves. And now we are describing the entire matrix of the free market economy that we love. Uh, the economy that, the laissez-faire economy that we are part of. Everything about this economy tells the responsible, and I put that in scare quotes, change yourself. Okay? Big fundamental change, changes, like your hair color or your hair altogether if you lost it, or lose it if you have it, or dye it brown if it's blonde, and blonde if it's brown, and gray if it's black, and black if it's gray, and tons and tons and tons of change. It's like they put forward this person whose perceived lifestyle and access and power and liberty you envy and then they say, you can look like him or her, implying that if you got their look, you would transcend, you would be free, you would be saved. So you need to change your job, you need to change your house, you need to change your wealth, you need to change your look, you need to change your physique, you need to change your bald head, you need to change your gray hair, you need to change your wrinkly face until you can't do it anymore. And the whole idea is that the responsible are going to make the world rich chasing changes that they believe are going to end in salvation. Why do people do drugs? So here's the third category. So we have the responsible changers. We have the hopeless changers. Why do people do drugs? Because they want to change their reality. They want to see differently. They want to feel differently. They want to lose the reality that traps them. And they want to transcend it through change. So alcohol or methamphetamines or various forms of prescription. It's like now I can, now I can have the change that is going to bring me freedom, is going to bring me happiness. Then there, so that, how many categories do we have so far? The blame, uh, the, the, the responsible changers, the hopeless changers, and then we have the blame changers. Or I should better say the blaming changers. It's winding up the opposite side of the same caterpillar pillar. And they say we need to change the institutions that have done this to me. Institutional blaming is one of the most powerful things. It's why people slander the church after they leave it. Institutional blaming is so compelling because while you may lack the guts or grounding to blame some individual for something they personally did to you, you suddenly feel okay if you blame the aggregate because you don't feel the guilt or responsibility of having lied about or harmed the person. So institutional blaming is very powerful. And Thomas Sowell said that we should, we should divide cultures into two groups. He said, 
on the one hand is the constrained worldview, and on the other hand is the unconstrained worldview. And he said, by this we simply mean that some people believe that they expect that life should be difficult, that it is unfair, and that they're going to have to work very hard to get anything good in order to compensate for the, the badness, the rawness of life. I'm paraphrasing brutally, but we'll understand it. He said, the unconstrained worldview believes that good flows with equal law to all people. And so when you discover that good did not come your way and you think it came someone else's way, you believe that someone proactively stopped the good that was coming your way. So you believe that every personal deficit is an act of aggression on the part of an institution, ultimately, a person or an institution. And the institutional appeal I've already explained. So this view says I've got to change the institutions because that's why I'm not the way he is. When you see a rich person, you say they are rich because they are privileged I need to destroy the privilege that is robbing me. That's Marxism, right? So when you see a happy person, you say they are happy because their family circumstance or their history is different than mine, so I'm going to make their life miserable or at least make myself miserable by whining about how my life is different. Right? This is the third category, and it's the, mo it's the largest, it's the fastest growing category of changers in the world today. It's the institutional blamers. They blame institutions because they think they were told you're a good person and the world is good. And good things are going to happen to you and the sky is the limit. Excuse me, I'm just choking on that. It was so obnoxious. But anyway, what a sick and stupid lie. When in fact you're a bad person and life is really tough, but good happens to both good and evil people. And bad happens to both good and evil people. You're going to have to transcend that. Does that make sense? So, so the institutional blamers, they are going to attack uh, worldviews and institutions. They're going to attack xenophobia, sexism, racism, homophobia, transphobia, and inequity as the biggest category to encapsulate all of these. we got to change the inequity in the world. right? So they set forth these programs that are supposed to alter the inequity and produce the result that the victim class was hitherto deprived of. And sure enough, they build a project housing system and they sell it to the nation and say, if we will do this, these people will find escape and the sky will be their limit. And they do it. And sure enough, all the project housing developments around the nation are evidence of that. Upward mobility, a gateway to, to success, right? And then they say, well, it's because we didn't do enough. We, we need to do more. So you go into places, I've been in places in Europe and, and, and uh, even the British Isles and you go into their socialist settings where, I mean, they have done everything. They, people have paid for housing, paid for health care, but for some odd reason, the problems don't go away. Why? Why? 
because your external environment may make your life harder and it may make your life easier, but the pivot point is the human soul. It's your heart condition. It is not your environment. And so we can go into the darkest corners of oppression and in a bunk in Auschwitz find grace, friendship, and human flourishing when the heart is turned and changed and reformed by God. And we can go into the most prosperous, privileged areas of culture and find depression, anxiety, bitterness, blaming, and misery. Hell started on earth there. There is no direct corollary. There is no cause and effect. The richer people are more unhappy. The poorer people are also unhappy. The people who have the middle are the most happy because they're not whining about how they're poor and they're not gloating about how they're rich. It doesn't really correlate. We can find grace in the prison where Joseph was kept unjustly and we can find injustice in the palace of kings. We can see the Jewish people undergo the worst genocide in documented history nearly wiped from the planet and emerge to birth from scratch the most advanced, remarkable state in history, in modern history. And if all of the arguments and rubrics of injustice applied, then the Jews should be condemned to abject misery and failure and defeat for the rest of eternity. But it was exactly the opposite. We see the same story with the Irish who were oppressed, who were sold into slavery, who were exterminated, subject to horrible laws. And we see that, that repression and that pushback and that stifling of the human spirit and liberty springing up as the frontier movement across America with both the Scots and the Irish and the Scots-Irish. There is no corollary. The pivot point, the turning point, is the human soul. There is no promise of lasting freedom that does not pivot on repentance. That's it. And the reason even this nation enjoyed greater levels of freedom, greater levels of prosperity, greater levels of unity and peace for a season is because it was married to a culture that believed in the innate flawedness of human beings. Madison was unequivocal. He said that our, our greatest aspiration was to transcend ourselves, to transcend our native state. All of them agreed that there was something ugly, something dangerous, something dark inside of, of human nature. But if that could be brought under subjection to what William Penn called the governor of the universe, then it could be 
brought into cooperation with peaceable people. You say, well, I, I agree when you're talking about institutional blaming, and I agree when you're talking about project housing and, and affirmative action and all of these things. I, I agree with all of that, but I don't agree when you're talking about me. I still think that my transformation pivots on a change in my circumstance. I, I cannot get out of my mind the notion that my circumstance is my problem. I know I've got problems, but they're not the problem. And if that is the case, then you are not free. And you are not subject to the judgment of God if you are not free. But if you are, in fact, subject to the judgment of God, then that is a bold-faced lie that you are telling yourself. And it's likely going to destroy your soul. Because liars are going to seduce you to changes that are going to expend your time and your energy and your resource until it's too late to make the changes that would have mattered. Don't spend your change on things that don't profit, so to speak. <laughs> you can think about that a little bit and hear the pun in it. Um, don't spend your transformation on the things that don't change. I believe down to my core that every human effort of reform not founded in searching introspection, increased responsibility, and a change of attitude and heart is guaranteed to fail. It will not produce the freedom, the joy, the bounty, the happiness that is sought. It's got to turn here. This is the catalyst. This mindset, this worldview. And so I think that as we move into this culture, of craziness we need to find these things in ourselves and we need to become the change we seek in the world to quote Gandhi so that we can have something to offer when people come <laughs> and we can say yeah that's not attached to your race and that's not attached to your socioeconomic background and that's not attached to your history that's not attached attached to your biology that is your humanity and I share it too. And I remember how I frustrated myself for years failing to take full responsibility. What does the word mean, responsibility? The ability to respond. If that isn't the definition of freedom, I don't know what is. The ability to respond. The ability to say yes to God. There's an American dream. And there's a homesteader's dream. And they can both get you off track. The American dream, I won't spend time on it because you probably see through it. But there is a, a poison in the bite of the homesteader's dream, too. Because if you don't watch it, 
you will start negating all the changes God has made you able to affect, able to respond to, because you're waiting for that dream that you thought it was all about. You can say, you know, my family's falling apart because we don't, we don't have the lifestyle. And if we could just get land, and if we could just get a garden, and if we could just get a coop, and, or if we could just spend more time like this and do like that. And, and those things may be peripherally true, and they may be contributions. They may contribute to success or failure. But your salvation is with Jesus through the Holy Spirit, whereby he puts grace inside of you. And with Paul, you can say, I have learned how to be content in every circumstance, in hunger and in plenty. Amen. I have found the secret. I have discovered the secret. The same Paul who said, I know in, that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who fought against Nazism and opposed the, the Reichstag Lutheran Church and was, tried to bring down the Third Reich itself and was eventually imprisoned and killed for his actions, he said, when all is said and done, the life of faith is nothing if not an unending struggle of the spirit with every available weapon against the flesh. So now I want to come full circle. I want to say that environment is important, but it's not the pivot. And you are likely following a deception that is going to waste years, if not decades of your life, if you are looking outside for the change when it all comes from within. Repentance is the antecedent to authentic freedom. Because it says, I am responsible, but Jesus can change the way I feel, think, the way I am at my core. And when that turns, everything else adjusts. Amen. That is the antecedent to true freedom because it is the prerequisite to true responsibility. Amen. They rejoiced that God had granted them repentance unto life. Oh, they can find the life now because they can stop whining. So let's come full circle. What is it? What, what is so obnoxious about the internal change, about the repentance change, or the heart change? What is so obnoxious about what God is calling us to, such that it makes us find these excuses all around us? It's what Brother Howard is talking about. It's what I was speaking of at the beginning. God has called you to be a spiritual man. And Paul rebukes the Corinthians for being mere men. We would offer that as an excuse. Paul, don't expect us to be more than mere men. Give me a break, man. In short, it's hard to be more than you are. 
No, it's not hard. It's impossible to be more than you are. The only way to be more than you are is to rely on, depend on, obey, act upon the grace of another. And that's what's so hard. (laughs) That in weakness we are made strong. That his power finds opportunity in our brokenness. We don't like that. We wish it weren't so. We resent it. (laughs) We want grace in order to not be needy. (laughs) We don't realize that grace does not resolve our need for God. It merely follows the humility that admits it and keeps admitting it. And so whenever you start getting this, you know, people, people can seek circumstantial change through a shopping bench. Seriously. They can seek false salvation by going and spending money that they don't have or even money that they do have. Buying things, changing this, changing that. It's like, it's this false sense of renewal. But what is renewal? It's rebirth. That's how the ancients, they worshipped the winter solstice. They worshipped their gods on the winter solstice. And then they worshipped them again at the other uh, end of the year. They were always looking for this death and renewal because they wanted to be reborn. And that's what all of these image changes are about. You can have this car and you can be reborn. You can have this look. You can have this hairstyle. And and we love that because we think that's going to give us the freedom. But we're taking the prison along inside of us. The prison is our own rib cage. And if you get free in here, you can be in a prison. You can be in a concentration camp. And you're still going to be thanking God for the lice because they allowed you to have fellowship. It's here. (laughs) It's not here. And it doesn't mean that for the weak or for the children or for any of us that our circumstance doesn't at times make life harder or easier. That, of course I admit that. And we want to make it as easy as possible. We want to support righteousness as much as possible. That is, in fact, our duty, according to Scripture. We are to create the best possible environment. We are not to put a stumbling block before a little one. That says create a good environment, right? But at the end of the day, you're going to die. Every single person is going to lose everything of their environment until only that which was essential, namely the soul, is going to be left to say, yes, and even if he kills me, I still will trust in him. You're going to lose everything. Every advantage of environment is going to be stolen, including your skin and your bones and your whole body. It's all going to go to dust. Something has got to transcend your muscles and your circumstance and your looks and all of this. Something more fundamental. It's this grace of God. And we don't want to make the sacrifice because we don't like the vulnerability. We don't like the relationships it requires. We don't like the humility it requires. We don't like the persistence it requires. Oh, we want a one-time fix. We'd do anything if it was never had to be done again. Amen. So, you know, do you have a, a prayer life? Do you read the Word of God? Does the Lord speak to you when you speak to your children? Do you hear His voice coming through you when you talk to your wife? Or your husband? When you come into the temple, do you bring spiritual sacrifices? 
Paul says, when you come, each of you bring. Do you bring a song, a hymn, a word of encouragement, a word of wisdom, a word of testimony? Many do, we know. But, but ask yourself, do I offer spiritual sacrifice that edifies the people of God and glorifies the occupant of this temple, namely the Lord Jesus? Do I do that? Because if you don't do that, the devil is going to start insinuating that everything is your circumstance. If you are reneging on the one thing he's called you to do, which would give fulfillment and purpose to your life, he is going to, the devil is going to start insinuating excuses. Now you say, well, why do you say that sacrifice gives me fulfillment? Well, then you will know, test and approve what God's good, acceptable, and what is this word? Pleasing perfect and pleasing will is. Oh, God. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Your happiness is in making that complete sacrifice, in finding the purpose, the one, the people that God sent you to love through, through service, through kindness. So if you're neglecting that, mm, Victor Frankel, Jewish gentleman who survived Auschwitz. He said, happiness is not something that can be pursued. He said, those who chase happiness will never find it. It cannot be touched. It is something that ensues when you pursue purpose. <laughs> he found that. We're going to have to find our purpose, and our purpose is the glory of God. Our purpose is the sacrifices that he's called us to make. Amen. Does God want you to plant a garden? Yes, and we do too. <laughs> Absolutely. Does God want you to have livestock and, and, and press toward more sustainability? Yes, and we do too. But I'm telling you, there's nothing in the history of mankind that has ever been so sustainable as the Garden of Eden. And it did not solve the problem. So stop acting, stop borrowing from Marx and Rousseau and these idiots whose philosophy you can't stand. Stop borrowing from them and lying to yourself about what the real problem is. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Amen. Try me and know my thoughts. And find if I'm free in my heart and my thoughts, then I can say that every wicked way is out of my life. Because that's where it all pivots. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Does this make sense to anybody? Yes. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Do you see the common ground between the materialism that entices us to buy things to change ourselves and the transgender movement of today? Do you see? I mean, makeup and hair dye and all these out. Ultimately, it's all just saying, I can find relief. I can find salvation in something other than an interchange of the heart. It's a lie. But search me, O oh God.